0: This morning it would be difficult not to talk about the resurrection, but we're going to come at it obliquely. Uh, As we've been going through the Bible in a year together as a congregation, uh, we're in the book of Deuteronomy. And so this morning I want us to look at Deuteronomy chapter 6, and we'll move from this text to the resurrection. So Deuteronomy chapter 6. This is the word of God. These are the commands, decrees, and laws the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the lands that you are crossing the Jordan to possess, so that you, your children and their children after them, may fear the Lord your God as long as you live, by keeping all his decrees and commands that I give you, and so that you may enjoy long life. Hear, Israel, and be careful to obey so that it may go well with you, and that you may increase greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, promised you. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your heart. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. When the Lord your God brings you into the land, he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to give you. A land with large, flourishing cities you did not build. Houses filled with all kinds of good things you did not provide. Wells you did not dig. And vineyards and olive groves you did not plant. Then when you eat and are satisfied, be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Fear the Lord your God, serve him only, and take your oaths in his name. Do not follow other gods, the gods of the peoples around you. For the Lord your God who is among you is a jealous God and his anger will burn against you and he will destroy you from the face of the land. Do not put the Lord your God to the test as you did at Massah. Be sure to keep the commands of the Lord your God and the stipulations and decrees he has given you. Do what is right and good in the Lord's sight so that it may go well with you, and you may go in and take over the good land the Lord promised on oath to your ancestors, thrusting out all your enemies before you, as the Lord said. In the future, when your son asks you, what is the meaning of the stipulations, decrees, and laws the Lord our God has commanded you? Tell him. We were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Before our eyes, the Lord sent signs and wonders, great and terrible, on Egypt and Pharaoh and his whole household. But he brought us out from there to bring us in and to give us the land he promised on oath to our ancestors. The Lord commanded us to obey all these decrees and to fear the Lord our God so that we might always prosper and be kept alive, as is the case today. And if we are careful to obey all this law before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. That will be our righteousness. Well, I don't know uh, what the circumstances of your week are, uh, but doubtless many of us have been busy doing a variety of things. So let's take a moment uh, just individually to bow before the Lord uh, in silent prayer. Just take a moment of personal meditation uh, And after just a few moments, I'll lead us in prayer. Our Father, in creation, you bring life into existence out of nothing. And in redemption, you bring life into existence out of death itself. Our Father, we cannot imagine the wisdom and the power and the loving holiness that is required for such things. But this morning we acknowledge that we are those who are under the sentence of death and your Son has provided redemption from death, from the curse, from sin and guilt and shame and dirt and defilement and there is life in Him. And our Father, I pray that this morning you will help us to celebrate that life that the life which is intrinsic to you is shared with us through the death of your Son and through his rising again. Lord, these things are too, they're, they're just beyond our ability to actually comprehend. Both the motive and the power and the ability and the reality. But Lord, by your Spirit, draw us deeper into what's really real, what's trustworthy and sure, what holds water. Help us to live in reality. Help us to know not only what we are, but who you are as well. And Lord, help us to know not only the redeeming power of Christ today. But help us to rest in the redeeming and purifying power that will be displayed in the future when you raise this universe to life from the dead and bring in the new heavens and new earth. Lord Jesus, we are told that you were raised to life for our justification. Apart from the resurrection, we cannot be right with God. And so we praise and honor you that because of your love, we are right with God because your life conquered death. Be with us, we pray. Open your word to us by your Spirit. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Deuteronomy chapter 6 is, without question, one of the most important chapters uh, in the Bible. It contains this fundamental command that the Lord Jesus Christ, when he's asked, what are the greatest commandments in the law? He reiterates this one in Deuteronomy 6-5. This is utterly essential and fundamental. If you want to know how you are to live your life, if you want to know what God requires of you, if you want to know the essence of what it means to be a human being, this is it. This chapter tells you. You must love God. You must love God with every fiber of your being, with every faculty that you have. Everything you are, everything He has given to you, is to be poured back out to Him in expressions of love. Now, before God gives this command to Moses, He reminds the people again about their redemption. You have been brought out. You are going into the land across the Jordan to possess. So there's an eschatological orientation here. Not in the sense of the the absolute end of time, but in terms of their own horizon. God is bringing them somewhere. He's bringing them into the promised land. He's bringing them somewhere good, a land flowing with milk and honey. Now, he doesn't need to specify, he does a little bit later, but he doesn't need to specify at this point that, of course, in order to go across the Jordan into the Promised Land, they have to have been brought up out of Egypt. And so they have been redeemed. They've gone through Passover, later on, at the end of the chapter, when the the situation is envisioned where a child is asking the parents, why do we obey these laws? What are we doing here? And they're told, you need to remember your history. You need to remember redemption. We were slaves in Egypt. God brought us out. We saw with our own eyes the mighty things that God did. And he's brought us up out of slavery, through the wilderness, into the promised land, by his grace and by his power. That's why we obey. We obey because of the kind of God that he is. Now here, as so often, there's a very strong connection made between obedience and blessing. If you obey, you will prosper. This has been horrifically twisted today uh, in a lot of popular preaching. Uh, and teaching, a lot of which used to be confined to late night cable television shows, but regrettably has become far more mainstream as time has gone on, uh, they're getting better viewing hours. Uh, this whole idea that if you're just faithful to God, then you, you, you'll never be sick, uh, and you'll be quite wealthy, and you know, you'll, you'll be able to drive whatever very expensive luxury car you want, and you'll be able to wear very expensive clothes, and all the rest. God, God wants his children... To act like princes and princesses, and he wants them simply to be sort of overflowing with opulence and extravagance. The very fact that we follow a Lord who was rejected and crucified should count slightly against that thesis. Uh, the historical reality that all of the twelve disciples were martyred for their faith should certainly count against that thesis, as should be looking at how the prophets of God were treated in the Old Covenant. Beyond that, uh, there's a lot of textual data you just need to utterly ignore to try to sustain that kind of position. It's, one of the most, it's a theological position, not even theology. Uh, it's a position that cherry-picks text unlike any other position that I know of. However, having said that, particularly in the Old Covenant, where God is teaching spiritual principles through material object lessons, there is a strong connection between obedience and prosperity and fruitfulness in the land. God here says, if you obey me, you'll be blessed, you will prosper. Now, the right way of thinking about this is not that it's a promise that you will be filthy rich, as if the whole point of God's plan of redemption is to confirm you in your crass hedonism. The whole idea here is that God, as a loving and wise parent, knows better than his children. How are you going to get along well in life? You're going to listen to God. Listen to him. Listen to what he tells you. In the same way that parents can tell their very small children, listen, you know, if, you want to, if you want to get along, listen to your mother and father. Right? There's nothing egotistical about this. Uh, this is simply prudent, good advice. Listen to me. Listen to God. Obey. Do things God's way. Things will go well with you. Right? Then he comes to this text. Hero Israel, the Lord your God is one. This can be interpreted uh, or even translated in different ways. It it may be uh, Yahweh, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Like it's a title of a scripture. Maybe the Lord our God, the Lord is one statement. It may be the Lord is God and and utterly unique or something along those lines. However you bring it across, the idea is that The Lord of Israel is one and utterly unique. There's a complete unity in God. There is no one like him. He is not divided. There is not a pantheon. There is no polytheistic world. There is one God, and he is not at cross purposes with himself. One God and one God alone. Utterly unique. Utterly united. And we are commanded to love him, and not just a little, with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our strength. Not too many months ago, I had a conversation with with a a good friend, a very good friend, who at uh, one point in his life uh, claimed to be a Christian for a number of years, and, and doesn't make that claim anymore. And so we, we met up, and we were talking, and one of the things that he said, just just one of many, was that he, he just struggles a little bit with um, God commanding worship. He's a God who, who commands us to praise him. Touch, touch egotistical, isn't it? Here's this God who, who commands us to love him. Well, how do you, how do, you do that? Like, how do you go around commanding people to love you? Well, what right does anyone have to command love and worship? You know, is God just sort of this, this celestial egotist, or egoist rather? Well, for myself, being naturally and universally loved, I've never had to command anyone to love me, so I don't know. It, it, just, it just happens spontaneously. But is it right for God to actually command love? Well, let's approach it this way. I don't think there's anything wrong with telling people that they ought to love what's right rather than what's wrong. I don't think there's anything wrong with telling people you ought to love beauty, not ugliness. You you ought to love morality, not immorality. You ought to love love, not hatred. You ought to love goodness, not badness. But of course, Goodness and love and and kindness and all these positive things, these virtues and these beauties that we are to embrace, have their source where? They have their source in God. Goodness is an expression of the character of God. As is love. As is beauty. In fact, if I had a long time, I would make a long argument that would suggest that uh, physical symmetry and aesthetic theory provides a mirror into what true beauty is, which is found in non-physical spirit, which is God. That is, beauty itself flows from God. And so if we want to tell people to embrace what's good and to love what's good, and, and surely there's nothing wrong with that. then we must tell people to love God. Because God is good. God is beauty. God is truth. And God himself knows that. In fact, one of the things that God does here is he raises our eyes from off ourselves and from off of our temporal horizon to someone who is of infinite and eternal value. At the end of the day, goodness is not an impersonal standard. It is a personal being. And so what God is doing is he's saying, look, look up, look to me. I am the source of love. Love me. I am the source of goodness and truth. Love me. Embrace me. There is nothing better than me. It's not egotistical if it's a fact. See the reason that we have problems with people who walk around sort of arrogantly preening their feathers and demanding all kinds of adoration is that they're not worthy of it. I so mean, we even think the person walks around like they're God. But what if you are God? God is calling us to set aside everything that's second rate and to actually embrace himself the only thing in the reality that can satisfy the heart. That's where to love him. Interesting that no one has a problem with, with loving material possessions, which is why I don't need to be told to. And no one has a problem with loving power. Or pleasure. But these things are entirely unworthy of human life. If if you live for pleasure and, and power and possessions, you do realize that there is coming a day, there is coming a time, very quickly as life unfolds, when you will be parted from your power and possessions and pleasure. And so if that's what you're living for... That you may as well embrace your existential futility now. Because it will turn to dust in your hands. Actually, more accurately, your hands will turn to dust. And you'll hold nothing in them. But God is greater than death. God is eternal, the eternal source of all value. And so He calls us to stop. Being content with lesser things. Love God. Dedicate your whole being to God. Mind, heart, soul, strength is every faculty you have with maximum fervor. And this is the one thing I, I have to admit I just do not understand. I, I, I do not understand this. There are a lot of responses that I understand towards God. The one I don't is the one that claims to be a Christian response. That is, yes, I know God. Yes, I put my faith in Jesus. I believe all of that. But then it's just reasonably apathetic. That's the one thing I don't understand. Because it seems to me This is either just sheer utter nonsense. If you believe that, that's fine. But act like it. Or, it is maximally the most important thing that there could ever possibly be in all of the universe. And if it's that, then act like it but no tertium quid, no third position, somewhere in the middle, where I believe it, but really I'm more interested in TV. I I believe it, but really I'm just more interested in in my new car. That's the one response which seems to to be utterly impossible if you really believe it. If you really believe it, it is all-consuming, it is everything, it is heart, mind, soul, and strength passionate, forceful embrace of truth and living out the entailments of it, it calls for nothing less. Which is why God does not say, love me as as much as you want to. Embrace me, but make sure you also have lots of room to bring in the things of the world, because that's really going to sort of fill up the gap that I leave in your heart. You know, love me mainly... But in, but fill up the rest, you know, put me in your top five. No, it, it, it's love me so supremely that it's as if there's no room for anything else. Then, because if you love God supremely, then you'll find that you can, you can enjoy other things and even love other people, but in proper balance and proportion. In fact, this is the trick you do realize that if you don't love God supremely, you actually can't love other people properly. And so God, in calling you to love himself supremely, is actually calling you to a life of expansive, utter love for everyone and everything. Because if you have to love God, if you love him supremely, you'll love what he loves. You'll, you'll, you'll align with his priorities. You'll, you'll see creation through his eyes. And so, a call to love God this way, supremely and passionately, is a call to love other people. But this is one thing. Actually, there's another thing I just don't understand. There's so many things I, I don't understand. I'm not that bright. I, people want to get upset with God for telling us to love Him. I mean, if, I will, if I was going to be upset with the command, I'd be upset with the command to love my neighbor. Like, are you? You're kidding. Like, loving God is a lie. You should love your neighbors. I mean, so we're called to love finite people too. that's hard. Loving God makes sense. Loving God, he's worthy. No, love your neighbor. Why? Why do you love your neighbor? Because they bear the image of God. So you see, so if you love God, then you will love that which bears His image. You love God, you will love your neighbor. In fact, you'll even love your enemy. You'll even be able to love your enemy because you see the image of God as distorted and broken as it may be. You still see the image of God in them and you love God so supremely. You cannot not love his image bearers. So you are to talk about these things when you sit at home. And I just, just, just ask, because I don't know. When's the last time you talked about these things when you sat at home? You're to talk about them when you're on the road, when you lie down, when you get up. they are to be symbolically tied on your hands and foreheads and on the doorposts. The point here. Probably symbolic, although it was taken, some taking it literally. The point here is this. If you love God supremely and, and utterly, when's a bad time to talk about him or think about him? And the answer, of course, is never. This should be as natural as breathing. As we go out into the world, we are to think. And we are to think about God. And we are to train ourselves to think and to think about God. Until it becomes second nature. So that when we're out and and, we, we go and we're walking and we see the moon, we cannot help But not think about that moon's creator. Or we go for a walk and we and we see the trees and and we can enjoy the trees, but then we we cannot keep ourselves from having our minds turn to the one who's the creator the one who's sustaining all things by his powerful word, we are to be so immersed in the love of God that, that it, it, it's just not possible not to love him. And that's what real fellowship is. This is how you can tell if you have real fellowship with people. Real fellowship revolves around encouraging one another and sharing in our mutual love of God. That's what it is. Because we both love God. And so it becomes the whole orientation of our lives. Now, a very strong warning. God is going to prosper them. And the danger in prosperity is forgetfulness. Listen, I know I know. You don't need to tell me this. I know it's true. I know that I have just a few hobby horses. I know that. I know that I am already at this point in my life nothing more than an irritable and crotchety elderly man. I know that. But I'm going to say this again. If there has ever been a people in the history of the world who needs to hear this warning, it is us. Prosperity can make you forget God. Hear that. Homes, food, clothes, think think about all of the things that we have that they literally could not have imagined and they were in danger of forgetting God and prosperity. You do realize that the vast majority of us, if we were reduced to living the way Israel lived then when they went to the promised land, in the types of homes that they had, the type of hard work that they had to do, the type of the heat they had to endure. Many of us would quickly discover how sanctified we really are. Their prosperity, which was a danger to them to forget God, would be considered such a demotion in our prosperity, it would be unfathomable to us. We need Desperately, desperately, as the richest people in the history of the world, to take this seriously. Do not forget God. The real danger, of course, is that these things will subtly chip away at that wholehearted devotion to God in love. So that we love God. It's very easy to say that verbally. I love God. Who doesn't love God on a Sunday morning? I love God. But then throughout the rest of the week, your life and priorities and affections show that there's something else or many other things that take his place. Hear this warning. Do not let houses and bank accounts and stuff cause you to forget God. Love him supremely. Now, When the children get older, they begin to ask, why do we obey these laws? And they're told about redemption, they're told what God did in Egypt, about the necessity of obedience and all of the rest. This tells you that there are times for ritual. There are times for ritual questions, ritual answers. There's also just times as you're living life to discuss these things. This morning with the slight pageantry of Easter Sunday, this is part of what we're doing. We're just reminding ourselves again of why we obey God and why we love Him. Because God sent His Son into the world because we were damned rebels. God sent His Son into the world to be completely loyal to always do what was right, to earn everlasting life, to be morally incapable of death, but then to put himself in the place of the rebels, to die in their place, to satisfy the wrath and justice of God, motivated by love, so that our penalty would be paid. Our death was died. And then Jesus was raised to life. Resurrection glory. Life that actually conquers death. And so when our our children, or when our neighbors, or when our our apostate friends, or whatever the case may be, ask why do you why do you why do you love God? They say, Well, let me tell you. Let me rehearse to you the gospel. This is why I love God. Now notice this though. God commanded Israel. In Deuteronomy 6, to love him supremely. They didn't know about Easter. They didn't know about the Incarnation. They didn't have Christmas. For the commercialism, that was probably a blessing. But they didn't know about the Incarnation, they didn't know about the cross. They had the shadows. They had literal lamb's blood. They had the type. They had the prophecy. We have the reality. We have the fullness. We love because he first loved us. While we were yet sinners. In fact, there... The second most famous verse in the New Testament. The most famous verse, just so you know, today, the most famous New Testament verse in our society is, do not judge. Which actually isn't even a full verse. uh, But that's, that's where our biblical literacy has got us to today. The second most famous New Testament verse runs this way. For God... So love the world. Why do we love God? At first we love him and ought to love him because he's intrinsically good. But it's, it is actually morally depraved not to love God just as God. Which is why in Revelation 4, God is praised for His intrinsic his, his intrinsic being first. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. That's just who God is. Later, he's praised for redemption. Before that, for creation. Being, creation, redemption. We love God just because of who he is. But who he is also motivates him to act. In redemption... And so we love Him because He so loved the world that He gave us His one and only Son. That whosoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. In other words, we have so much more cognitive information with which we ought to love God than anyone in Deuteronomy had. In Deuteronomy, they had liberation from slavery. They had the tabernacle. They had the day of atonement. Yes, yes, they were going to the promised land. Sure, but, but we have Christ. Not in promise, but but in fulfillment. We see how much God loves us in the cross and the resurrection. And so if God could rightly command people in Deuteronomy to love Him with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength, how how much more do we need to do that? Who live this side of Calvary, this side of the empty tomb, this side of the day of Pentecost? Because Jesus Christ is even now not only alive, but reigning at the right hand of the Father until He comes back. And what was all this for? For the glory of God, yes. But the glory of God, how? The glory of God through the display of His love and holiness in the redemption of sinners. Do you realize? Do you realize that if your faith is in Jesus Christ, do you, do you realize that today, that means that you are the object of infinite love? Do you know that? Do you know that it is, it is, it is quite literally impossible? It cannot happen. For you to be more loved than you are. And God says, Come in. Come into my love. Love me too. Not in the desperate sense of of the egotist, but in the sense of this is your home, this is where you belong. This is where you'll find fulfillment here and nowhere else. Love me passionately. I am love. Love me. See how much I love you. I mean, Where are you going to go to find someone who loves you more? Where are you going to go to find someone who's more worthy? Where are you going to go to find someone who does more for you? No, we love God because He first loved us. And the glory of his love and life is that when it conquers death, it is ours, not just for now, but for eternity. For eternity. I, 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 I actually don't know how. It's another, another thing, apparently, that I don't know. I actually don't know how people can bear to think that they could love people and lose the ones they love Forever. To think that God can bless us so richly with love. But then just for a few years and then it's gone. No, the love of God that he gives us, that he sheds abroad into our hearts, is love that goes on forever. Because Jesus Christ's life has conquered death and we will live forevermore. In love. In God. Now this morning we are going to have a baptism. And that is just another display of the love of God. And people who are saying that yes, they want to be immersed in that love, in that salvation, united with Christ in his life, death, burial, and resurrection. Easter Sunday is a great day to have a baptism. Any Sunday is a great day to have a baptism. Actually, technically, it doesn't even need to be Sunday. But, To see and to savor the love of God. He's still saving sinners today. And by his spirit and grace, sinners are still entering into his saving love. That's a wonderful thing. So I'm going to ask uh, our musicians to come. They're going to lead us in a song of worship. And we're going to prepare uh, for the baptism after that.